0: Ladies and gentlemen, I'm not Renee Redzepi or David Chang. The keen-eyed among you may have noticed that. Um, my name's Pat Nurse, I'm here on behalf of Gourmet Traveller, and it's my pleasure to be poking Renee to say more interesting things and occasionally poking Dave to shut up. <laughs> does, that, does that work for all of you? Fantastic. Gentlemen, the theme of today's talks is tomorrow's meal. Mm-hmm. David Chang, is the meal we're having today all that different to the meal we were having... 50 years ago?
1: Um, I think the meal today is very different. I, I think that you have a younger generation that demands better food than ever before. Um, people know more about food than ever before, but at the same time, um, we're having this discussion over and over and over again of some the sameness, I feel like. What, whatever country we're in, I feel like people are oftentimes cooking the same thing. And it's something I think that Renee can speak to about having just opened a restaurant here in Australia.
2: Well, I mean, if you ask me if food is better than 50 years ago, uh, I I mean, 10 years ago in Copenhagen, no, no, maybe not 10 years ago, that's a bit... Let's say 20 years ago, you went to a restaurant in Copenhagen, and it would be a quality, a sign of quality if the ice cream didn't have crystals in it, you know? I mean, today, you go into every single little ice cream store, every restaurant, if the ice cream isn't perfect textured, you would never go back. Uh, And if the flavor is not intense and amazing, uh, you know, you find the next place. I mean, in that sense, it's incredible what's happened. I think the quality that we eat on a daily basis is unparalleled, especially in our part of the world. So I think, for sure, this is something that food is so much better now. Is it better from when I think that I, w- the food stuff that I grew up with without when I was a child? Not so much. I mean, I don't think, I think, I, I agree with what you say, the fact that everything is the same. It doesn't matter almost where you are in the world. You eat something and you close your eyes and you don't know where you are in the world and you don't even know what season you're in anymore. I mean, on a, any given Monday throughout the year, we eat the same thing. Uh, a- avocado smash, if you're in Sydney, <laughs> I've come to discover. <laughs> uh, They're really expensive at the moment, <laughs> I don't know that. Oh, tell me about it, like six dollars <laughs> for an avocado. Come on. Um, but, but, you know, back home it's the same, I'm not, you know, it, it, we just... You pay a lot for avocados? We don't eat them like that, I mean. Um, we're more simple, it's porridge. Um, so, so I, I, I agree that that, you know, that uh, even though we eat so much better, there's so much more quality for us, we also eat so much more of the same. So maybe uh, there's something lost in that sense that, there, that we used to have a bigger sense of se- seasonality, a bigger appreciation for the fruits of nature, and a bigger appreciation for using your senses and being excited for something new coming. Whereas I think we've lost that uh, but we eat better, if it makes sense. You know, the ice cream is better <laughs> uh, today than, than than 20 years ago. Um, but we are so disconnected from anything in terms of food, where it comes from, the finger lime or the steak. I mean, any chef sitting in here that tried to put a dead animal on Instagram and uh, felt the hate afterwards uh, from people saying... How cruel are you? And then you can go on in on any of those Instagram profiles and they have pictures of steak. Steak doesn't come from dead animals. Ste- well, it's amazing, right? This is the cook's dead animal. It's more morbid in that sense uh, than just having uh, something fresh in a sense. So it's weird.
0: We, the ice cream is better, but we're more disconnected from everything and it's more the same. The, the Sydney Biennale... Mm-hmm is running in town at the moment and um, its theme this year, or one of its mottos is, the future is already here, it's just not evenly distributed yet. It's a quote from the writer William Gibson. Do you think that might apply to the question of of food and how we feed ourselves in the world today? David Chang? (laughs) Big question.
1: People always ask me, like, "Oh, well, where to eat? What are you What are you enjoying these days?" And I want to give them this happy-go-lucky answer that it's this place is great and this place is great. And while food is better than ever before, I, I, I can't help but to be this glasses-half-empty kind of guy because with all the access to what we have in the world today, whether it be ingredients or food knowledge, uh, social media certainly changed how we how we think. I think that even the cooks that come into the kitchen today they know more about technique than ever before, but there's a discrepancy between knowledge and actually backing that up with some type of craft. And, and what, I, what I'm curious to see is, in terms of food and the future of food, is how are you gonna be able to find that balance? I think we've gone way too much in the knowledge end, and way too much in terms of following this rabbit hole as far as it can go. It's because, oh, I like this, you know, this northern Thai cuisine, but I'm, I've actually never cooked professionally before in my life, and now I'm gonna open up a restaurant. And that's fantastic because you get failure and cool stuff can happen out of that. Um, so I think what's going to happen is you're going to have these, the smaller casual dining is going to become more fractured and you're going to have more sort of single item shops. Not, not so different than what you see in Singapore or, or, or Malaysia.
0: More specialization. Hey, more specialization. Way, way more ingredient. specialization.
1: Because the barrier of entry for you to learn how to cook that food is not that high. You just 20,
0: get really good at that one dish.
1: Right. 20, 25 years ago, if you wanted to learn how to cook, you had to work at a French restaurant. There was no other option. Mm-hmm. So I can't okay. ask a young cook, hey, you should go work for this three mission star French chef. That's not even an option anymore. So I think you're going to see something really strange happen to the middle part of dining and I still am trying to figure out what's going to happen on the high end. But I do believe that the, the sort of, the, the fracturedness of food is a good thing. I, I
0: mean, on the one hand, perhaps the people at the table at today's meal might be more educated consumers, but it seems like we're eating fewer things. I mean, the, you know, the variety of carrots we eat now is way narrower. We might be excited about having a purple carrot and a white carrot, but, you know, 100 years ago, maybe we would have had 10 carrots. Does the restaurant have a role to play in, in you know, educating us about more diverse eating? I mean, <clears throat> what
2: is the restaurant's role besides making the 40, 50, 60, 100 people happy uh, every night? Is there more than that? That's a big question. Some say yes. Others say, shut up and go back to the basement, uh, chef. <laughs> um, That's you, right? <laughs> But that's you know what's happening right now. There's a big transition in which um, people that work with food they're also becoming opinion makers in food, and they have um, a role to play in education and in actually spreading the message and being community leaders of you know the people that work with you and also the people you support in terms of the farmers and and so on. It's this focal point that it's starting to be like that. So. I would say yes. I mean, I would say yes. Uh, I'm gonna explain to you about a project, now that you ask the questions like that, uh, where it's done in a way where I feel that, as an individual, if you understand that something makes a difference, and in this case, um, understanding seasonality, being in nature, being a forager, you know, the buzzword that so many love to hate, um, and, you know, every time, if I talk about this in New York, people are like, hey, I'm from Bronx, I don't fucking forage. Um, <laughs> and then people, people, be, people be, you know, sending me pictures with weed smoking and joint, this is how I forage, you know? <laughs> I-, I
0: send them those photos. <laughs> <laughs> But, forge yourself some shoes, bro. <laughs> but to me, <laughs> <laughs> oh, we should probably
2: get back on track
0: yeah.
2: now. <laughs> uh, no, so, so for me, now uh, exploration of food stuff in our region and for the restaurant, we've discovered this incredible range of foods that not only have given us a lot of success, but it also changes as people and as cooks, it actually made me a happier person to understand the, 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 the rhythms of nature and my connection to it and my understanding on how we fit in in this uh, ecosystem. And, and then I start having children, and you start doing it to your kids, and hello, 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 uh, we back again. Um, you start doing it uh, uh, with your children, taking them out, and. Next year, suddenly when the season is up for that flower, they just go for it and they pick it. And you know, they, they don't see uh, the environment as a beautiful place only. They also see it as a delicious place where you can like, pick things and eat. And so what, what is that? They're using their senses in a much more profound way uh, than you do just by seeing and reading. And that's actually really good. That's science that proves for kids that's a really good thing. So we thought, okay, we have we know this works, we know there's something there. So we created a project through MAD. MAD today is more than a symposium, it's also a food NGO, and we, we call it Wild Food, which is a project that has three programs. The most important of them is changing curriculums for every single school kid in Denmark. But The dream is that every single school child in the world will be a forager. Just like they learn their ABCs and their their math, they should also, through natural sciences, learn the rhythms of nature and how it tastes, how to use their senses in a more profound way. And we wrote the project, it took a year to write this idea, and we had to get everybody involved, from the government to the private sector, et cetera, et cetera. And we're launching it in 2017, actually in Danish public schools as a study case where it will be be studied. So in that sense, that's a perfect example of something that, you know, it's a natural evolution of something that happens in a restaurant that we feel makes a big difference, not just from your success, but also from you as an individual, and you want to spread that. And that is just something that I think every person should do. It, it, it's not even, I think the, the discussion of, oh, should chefs say something, or shouldn't they say something? Just go back to the kitchen, will you, and shut up and leave the real talking uh, to people who went to college or uh, whatever <laughs> Whatever these guys are saying. Um, I think it's just stupid, because it's, it's, if you have something to share that you feel makes a difference, it doesn't matter who you are. You have to do it.
0: If, that's how I see it. Because there, there was a piece, uh, oh, sorry, there was a comment from a reader... In a piece about your Sydney um, pop-up in the New York Times, and the, the reader said that, "Why are we?" Something along the lines of the fact that, uh, "Why are we still talking about foraging? This is a frivolous and essentially bourgeois, you know, diversion." Oh my God! <laughs> I mean, it is, stuff like this makes me so angry. They were from Vancouver. That comment, but I it's the most. How can you?
2: I mean, it makes no sense to say it. It makes no. When you say shit like that. Why are we si- Why are we sitting on a chair? Then nothing matters, you know. Then nothing matters. Everything is is frivolous. Is learning in, in is a learning sense. how to feed yourself. And frivolous? is learning I mean... how to feed yourself. Is learning how to be curious. Is learning how to. Nobody is claiming this is going to be the uh, the thing that's going to feed the next uh, f- you know uh, food uh, issue somewhere in the world. Um, but it, it it's an extraordinary thing to do. It's an extraordinary thing to learn about the world. It's an extraordinary thing to, to give yourself uh, pleasure. And it's an extraordinary way to
1: explore the world too. I mean, I think this goes back to what we're probably talking about, the food of tomorrow. It's about education. Mm-hmm. And it would be great if we could forage all our foods. I'm a chef in New York City. While you can actually forage in certain places, um, it's pretty limiting. But the reality is, is if you have that skill set or if you understand it and you respect it, it makes you appreciate the whole scheme of all the food that comes across your plate and to the diner's plate. And I, I've never been one to think that knowing too much is a bad thing. Yeah. Um, and I liken it to, you know, this is why we take trips and bring our cooks up to farms so they can, you know, be part of the process of a slaughter of a chicken or a turkey. You know, no, we don't kill all our turkeys or chickens every day, but they're going to be damn sure the next time they're cooking it hey, this actually doesn't grow on trees. And I think it's a really important thing to have a respect of everything. And going back to what you said earlier about sort of the role of a chef in the kitchen, I'm not one to sort of make proclamations, we have to do this, we have to do this. I really believe in leading... (laughs) This is funny. Uh, I'd rather do it by example, at least. And, um, you know, I feel that's like good business.
0: Do you feel... (laughs) Um, We've spoken briefly about the, the food of today. Um, I, I,
2: sorry, could I just make a comment to what Dave said about the education thing? Because when talking about the food of tomorrow, I, I have to agree with that. The, the, the educational part, I think, is the absolute paramount. And I think if there's parents out there that you know, say, I don't care, but I want to eat my steak every day because this is what I enjoy, um, yeah. I enjoy that too, and, and you know, if you're not, you know, I understand that people are not willing to take away the things that really uh, makes them enjoy uh, their daily life, but when you're told that there's uh, a different way that can actually give something really valuable, at least, you know, I think peop- we should do it for our children. We should teach them more about food, about, about what happens in the world of food, how seasons work we should teach our kids how uh, our meat enters uh, the plate. I, I think so. They shouldn't grow up seeing this just as an ingredient, like, like a parsley leaf, when they actually have a chicken breast. That, but there's something happening there that there's an animal that's being slaughtered, something is grown for you. And I think this is the, one of the only ways, really profoundly, that we can get, a, uh, get rid of all this epidemic that is the food waste. Uh, which we all, I mean, we do it at the restaurant, you know, people don't finish their food, and they're like, we throw it in the bin, and, and you know, they talk about this thing that a third of the f- world's food is wasted, and you, you talked about, is it even distributed? Some places, they have no food. Other places, they're throwing away 50% of it. Um, because, because what? Maybe it's because there just is no more connection or respect towards anything anymore uh, of the stuff that enters the table. It's just a, a thing you buy, and I think that's a shame.
0: 345 kilograms per Australian household per year, $8 billion in this country alone in food thrown in the bin.
1: Yeah. And uh, that's just... But I'd, I'd argue, and this is the thing, is the education of cooking. If every Australian, even American, like, if they were making all of that stuff themselves, I guarantee you there'd be almost zero... Waste.
0: I stand eating it in the bin before I chuck it in the bin am like, oh, I can't throw this out, I made this, this is beautiful, but if it's something in a packet, you're just like, whatever, you know, so, is I mean, again, is there a role for the restaurant there, I mean, you guys, I know at Noma, are very aggressive on food waste, it's also quite traditional, I mean, if you're a restaurant owner, you know, you can't there's, afford that, food there's waste. that story about your, your fellow New York chef, Dave Mario Batali, going through the bins in his restaurants, getting angry at the chefs, like, why aren't we selling this stuff, you know? There's an economic argument. I don't do that. (laughs) You don't go through Mario Batali's bins? I mean,
2: you know, but we both grew up in a time in which the kitchen, uh, what they were fed were all the carrot peels. I mean, there uh, there was a time when you threw nothing out and we had had that.
1: Cooking with scrap makes you a much better cook. Are
0: there any cooks in the house? None, seemingly. Okay, great. (laughs) Has anyone here been fed a stock raft as a staff meal? A what? A stock raft. You know what you clarify your stock with? Like the eggshells. Oh, and yes. The...
1: That's been family meal so many times. Yeah. Possibly. I mean, the question I have, and I was just, talking to, talk, just hearing this out, is my, my litmus test for this is when we're plating a dish and I have a beautiful cut of, you know, say, beef, and I'm carving it up and I cut the end off because it doesn't look nice on a plate. I'm at war with myself and everyone else around me when we do something like that. And I, I think that the kitchen of tomorrow, for sure, that won't happen, mm-hmm. you know? I just don't think that we're going to be as frivolous to be like, well, I'm going to make it a little bit more geometric so it's more aesthetically pleasing. Um, to me, these are things that are going to go by the wayside.
0: I mean, there's a, there's a movement here in Sydney, one of the, the more high-profile fruit and vegetable shops here now has a section where they sell the ugly vegetables that wouldn't normally make it to the store.
2: Yeah, so Harris Farms. Harris
0: Farm, exactly. You know, let's do a little bit of a. <laughs> Is anyone here <laughs> from let's Harris Farm? A little Farm? bit of a yeah, nice. <laughs> Jackson, um, just speaking about produce for a moment. I mean,
2: you... yeah, but one thing about these things that are ugly. I mean, science actually tells you that uh, ingredients that are pressured, uh, that uh, that are attacked by animals and stirred up by wind and ugly, they actually taste better. You know,
0: so you should go for them. They've got personality. Yeah. (laughs) Tastes better. Speaking about ingredients, um, the two of you, well you've just closed your restaurant here in in Sydney, hand Mm -hmm. on the heart, moment of silence, thank you. Um, Dave, you still have a restaurant here, keep it up, it's awesome. You guys both engage with the question of using uh, indigenous Australian ingredients and um, of course, we have fantastic Australian chefs like Kylie Kwong, who will be speaking here on the stage later this afternoon, engaging with the question. But it seems like, in addition to yourselves, some of the most prominent voices in Australia in this conversation are outsiders. They're yourselves. They're people like Ben Shuri, who happens to be a stealth New Zealander. Um, Jock Zonfrillo at Orana is a, a Scot. Uh, is there more freedom as an outsider to play with these ingredients, or are you... You know, I mean, you you worked in restaurants in you've got restaurants in Canada, Dave. You've got you've worked in in Japan, so. Rene.
2: I definitely think so. I mean, you know, this thing, when you grow up, when you grow up, it's i I don't know how to address it properly because it's a very sensitive topic. Sometimes when you start talking about native foods to some people. And to, to others, it's you know there's many opinions about it when we actually discuss it with Australians at uh, at the restaurant. But when you come here, you don't have any history. Um, you're not grown up here. You don't know what lies hidden in the culture when you talk about bush foods or the bush tucker man or uh, uh, you know settlers and aboriginals and, and all these things. You're just going for what's exciting. So when you come here from across the world, I'm not gonna come here and cook carrots. I'm not gonna come here and cook a steak. You know, I want, to be, I want to explore what Australia is. I want to be surprised. I want to have all the new flavors. And we, we researched for almost six months. We read so many books, read so many papers about food stuff. This is a great story. I, I, I tell it at the restaurant when we serve the macadamia nut dish, and, and, you know, we, we were we were reading so many things, and it was, like, mind-boggling. There's 7,000 uh, edibles from the plant kingdom in Australia. Wow. That's pretty crazy to think of, right? 7,000. And it's not just witchetty grubs, which to most Australians, like, oh, bush food, oh, witchetty grubs. You know, they're, like, a slimy bug. That's what the first thing a lot of people think of. Um, but these are, like, fruits and plants and roots and mushrooms and all sorts of things that that, that are really amazing, and then we traveled around here for nine weeks, uh, all over uh, the country as much as we could. Um, but before all of that, we were we were uh, we were we were going to a supermarket, and we were gonna we were gonna taste. We asked ourselves, what can we get in the supermarket from Australia, and it's not lamb. That's from New Zealand, in Denmark. Um, but you can get Foster's beer. We don't drink that. I know that, you all say. Um, <laughs> it's a trick we play on tourists. It's... <laughs> and then you can get uh, macadamia nuts. So, you know, we, we dig in and we, we say, wow, macadamia nuts, that's an Australian ingredient. Then you find out, okay, it's actually from Hawaii. Not true, um, Not true.
0: it's actually an Australian ingredient. Yeah, but the ones we people. have
2: in Denmark, they're grown in Hawaii, but the, the macadamia nut originates from Byron Bay. That's where all, that's the mother of all macadamia nuts. All around the world, that we all, I mean, I think everybody eats a macadamia nut at least five times a year in your muesli or something, right? Um, So you come here and you're like, okay, let's go to the farms, let's go there where they originate from, and we found these people that have grown them forever, and we're like, how does the root taste? Can you eat the bark? How is the flavor of the smoke from the wood, if you were to use it? What about the shoots, what about the leaves, what about the flowers? And at first, you know, the farmers, are like, they look at, at, at you like you're stupid. <laughs> but then, it's like a click, and, and you know, they look, and the one guy, he looked at it and he said, you know what, I don't know. And that's like, that's, this, that's the curiosity that I think, when you've grown up with it, you may not have, but when you come from afar, you're just looking at ingredients, you're like, what can we eat of this tree? This originates from here, let's explore it. And I think an outsider has more of that, absolutely. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. We're in love with your country. You, know, you come here, it's like a love story.
1: Um, but I think the difference with what Renee is, and we experienced the same when we opened up here, and this is again, I think, to the overall theme of why we are all here, you know, cuisine in the future, what the plate is gonna look like tomorrow. And I think that all of you guys, cooks, Casual diners, people here just to have some fun, need to remind yourselves that one reason why I think we were be able to be more successful at it, because we were outsiders, we were not beholden to any cultural truths or anything that said, you can't do this, you shouldn't do this. We had no idea. We were literally going by our tongue. What was going to be the most delicious thing? Yeah. And I think that's like the best thing to oftentimes follow, because. That's what we do. We make food and we want to make the most delicious foods possible. And we want to have all the things that are available to us. So that's what was so exciting. And I think that oftentimes, even in America or wherever I am, I have to remind myself that almost everything that's been uh, given as a cultural truth or a food, particularly food truths, mm-hmm. are almost always wrong at one point or another. So always question. That's just my rule of thumb.
0: Yeah. You and uh, Fox Mulder, I think.
1: <laughs> thank, you, thank you, thank
0: you. No copyright there. Uh, I was lucky <laughs> enough to be present at a talk at a, a Sydney artisanal wine festival called Rootstock mm-hmm. a, a couple of months ago, and the Australian architect uh, Rick Laplastria was speaking there. He actually worked on, with Utson, your countryman, on this building. And one of the things he said in his speech was that he thought that in this country, at least... Uh, Indigenous Australians should be our greatest teachers. And I know in the restaurant, Renee, you haven't just engaged with Indigenous ingredients, but you've also made references in some of your dishes to Indigenous traditions. What's been your experience of Indigenous Australia?
2: Amazing. I mean, completely amazing. By far our biggest inspiration uh, here uh, for, for NOMA Australia, I mean, when, when we went about our research and we traveled, you know, it was clear that people live on the shoreline here. I mean, you, we didn't know that, but you can see on the shoreline, it's like, that's where all the life is. Right there when the water sort of hits the land, that's where everything grows, that's where people are. That was our main focus. And then we were looking for a way to sort of cook and you know, you you, you, you are, uh, when you go to Australia, you're invited for a barbecue always. People invite you for barbecues all the time in Australia. Um, We've been doing it for 40,000 years. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's a thing. And that's the thing. So in the cities, it's like a neat little box from a nice brand. And then you go to the Aboriginals and it's a fire, but it's essentially the same thing. Uh, so the fire became a very, very big thing for us. And then we still were figuring out, you know, how to actually. Is it going to be very elaborate or is it going to be quite simple, very focused on ingredients? And that's where our experiences with Aboriginals really became something amazing because all the places we visited, it was always fresh caught, fresh harvested, freshly fished or whatever you can say, and then cooked on fire and then eaten right there, sizzling hot. It's amazing, amazing. Only one place did we actually experience ingredients mixing, which was in, in Gove where there's a, a more tradition of, of Indonesian uh, trade. So they were doing a chili paste. They've been doing that for like 200 years and they were putting a chili paste on, on their kangaroo. Uh, so that for us was like really, really important that one or two things together. That to me became very Australian. That is focused on the high quality ingredients that exist here. All the things from the, from the ocean, it's mind-bogglingly good. Cook it. Um, as fresh and as close to when people eat it as absolute possible. And then just have maybe one or two things with it. I mean, the abalone we have have like 17 things on the menu with it, but it's all raw material, you know. Um, So it's been a mega influence on us. All the introduction to a lot of these food stuff is incredible. They are the original foragers, you know. They are just so good. And I don't think we could have become as successful as we have been without them. Then I'm sure we'd fallen in the traps that we do back home of you know, broken gels and savory meringues and all the technique-driven, I'm not gonna say bullshit, but I almost wanna say that, you know? Do you, do you wanna say bullshit at this time? Bullshit. <laughs> um. So, so it, it's, it's been mind-blowing and, and you know, I was walking there and I was thinking, okay, we have this project in Denmark wild food where we're gonna teach school kids to be foragers. The mission is that every every school kid should be a forager. Uh, And we have this system in which there are field biologists that are teaching already, uh, Boy Scouts and so on. So the the, the teaching core is already there, we just need to make them teach in a different way. And I was like, wow, in Australia, wouldn't it be amazing if all school kids actually took walks um, with the people that know nature, to follow the rhythm of the season, three to four to five times a year, to see how it changes and what grows, how to eat it, I think that would be incredible.
0: To change tack very briefly, David Chang, your most most recent restaurant that you've opened in in Manhattan, Nishi, among the other interesting things you're doing there, you're trying to pay your workers a living wage, (coughs) which in the United States is sometimes considered an unusual move. How's that working out for you?
1: You know, uh, to commend everyone in Australia, it's like, I, I wish we could adopt more of an Australian model in terms of how people get paid. I think everyone in this country has an appreciation of food and how food costs, particularly because so many things are imported. And there is a big movement in recent, uh, the recent year for living wage, and, and this is like pre-Bernie Sanders, feel the burn stuff, this is just happening. And Albany just changed, uh, voted yesterday, that it has to be mandatory $15 minimum in, in the state of New York, and these are all things I am 100% for. As a cook, you sort of live, literally live hand to mouth, and in this day and age, especially in New York City, as expensive as it is, you just cannot survive. It's one reason why I think a lot of great cooks are leaving the city to move to other places, and that talent drain really sucks. Um, and that's always been my goal as a as a as a chef. That will always be culinary oriented. I want to take care of my guys first, and that's our experiment per se. And that and that was the exact uh, the, the goal of Nishi was to reverse engineer our prices. What do we need? Well, what do we want to pay our cooks, our dishwashers, our servers, and then we will figure out everything else from that. And. <clears throat> It's not a great space. It looks like a very like a normal momofuku, very, very, uh, very hard. <laughs> no, no backs on the stools and all of these things, and the, the the food's more expensive. And the reality is, is like I think we're close to figuring it out, but we're we're like a 60, 65 seat restaurant. And for me, I'm figuring out what the future is going to hold for restaurants tomorrow, because I'm concerned that the middle market restaurant will disappear and become extinct. Um, because you can do no tipping I think very successfully in a hotel, in a restaurant that has over 120 seats to 150 seats, um, there are all these things that are still being figured out and I am very cautious of saying this is what works, this is what doesn't work. Um, and I think that for at least in New York City, in America, we're in the process of figuring something out that, uh, that is going to change and it's going to fundamentally alter the landscape of the culinary industry
0: do you feel like restaurants can be part of community building? Either of you, gentlemen, do you feel like the restaurant has a function or can have a function in enriching or building a community? I mean, I, I would like
2: to say something on that because I, I mean, <laughs> funny enough, we were talking about this last night as we we're ending our uh, our tenure here with this, with the team. We we're talking about community which to me is one of the most uh, incredible things uh, that have come out of NOMA, and one of the most empowering things um, as a business, but also as an individual. And we've been able to see over the past 13 years how there is, is created a, a community, not just back in Copenhagen, but, and there's two types of communities. There's a community that is all your former uh, staff, that uh, go out and do their thing and they open restaurants and many of them actually do really well. Some of them even better than, than what we do. A lot of them do a lot better than we do, um, especially financially. Um, but, um, and, 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 but you know, you, it's like that, that, that's a community. That's actually people. a community spreading and ideas spreading. Uh, DNA spreading, um, a way of operating. It, it's inevitable that, that whatever people learn at a place, they take with them a part of it, and then they go and make it their own. That's how innovation works. Existing things that are made your own. And, um, and then there's a second community, which is all the people you work with that, that trade with you, that support you with ingredients and foodstuff. And when that first community grows, the second community also grows because they feed into each other. And we've been able to see a really, really amazing transformation in Copenhagen. I mean, I've mentioned before a story of one of our farmers that that used to grow carrots for supermarkets and he was miserable uh, because he just, you know, imagine just doing one thing uh, all your life and, and he's like sixth generation of it. And so he starts working with restaurants and he starts growing the land and starts actually having a, a diverse crop. And he starts making himself happy again because suddenly he's working what he's trained to do. He's, he's really taking care of it. And, and so today he delivers a weekly bag of foodstuff for more than 200 families besides supplying a lot of restaurants. And so that's an incredible way of, of community building of. Uh, empowering a community, and that just keeps growing and growing and growing if you keep staying generous, if you keep not feeling entitled or jealous of other people, if you keep supporting each other, and always working for the community, and not working for yourself, because I have to say, that's extremely important. You can't talk shit about your sous chef that goes out and becomes successful because you're jealous that that person suddenly is the flavor of the year, you have to support the whole system and the whole community, and when you do that, like I feel Copenhagen has been extremely good at doing, it's just, you just hover, you just take off, you know, like a rocket. The level lifts. Yeah,
1: oh, incredibly. Rising tide lifts all boats, and I think that this is exciting. Just, I was just thinking while you were talking, like, oh my God, a community didn't exist maybe 15, 20 years ago when people were starting to do these talks, it was about my technique, and I'm going to unveil it today, and you have no idea what I'm doing. And most of these things, because of the internet and cookbooks now, those are all out there, and those are open source, and people are still coming here, and thank you guys for coming today at this symposium, because I think community is still so vital to the success of this business, which is so goddamn hard. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one reason why Renee and I remain so close, is because we're able to Talk to each other about things that are oftentimes not even culinary related. And you need a community to sort of keep the faith, you know, for someone that is. I'm a direly pessimistic guy, but uh, <laughs> uh, it's the community and it's the people around me that, uh, that actually keep my head above water oftentimes, so. We're
0: on the, the verge of having to surrender to the stage to people wearing shoes, but. <laughs> Gentlemen, before, before we do that, I can't guarantee they're wearing shoes, I'm sorry. Before we do that, the meal of tomorrow, glass half full, let's say, what do we want? What do we expect from it? What's it going to look like?
2: You go first.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, great, 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 great. It's, uh... I think that you're gonna have a more amalgamation of what food is. I think you're gonna have a hard time figuring out what ethnicity it was. I think hopefully we'll be able to erase the word ethnic food altogether. And Ethnic means people, I yeah. think. So. It's just food. People's food. People's food. And I, I hopefully like, you'll have more and more food, foods fusion together into something that we have never seen before. Um, but I think that the, 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 we have an uphill battle ahead of us. There's a lot of environmental concerns, there's a lot of labor concerns, and um, I think there needs to be some type of vision for a lot of people to follow through, and I think there, uh, this is a whole other topic that I could go on and on for, but I think the future could be very bright, and it could also be very, very not so much.
0: That's your time to step in, and yes. before he <laughs> starts doing his thing. Well, we had this uh, competition
2: where we asked young students to uh, give their view on tomorrow's uh, meal, uh, and we had lots of applicants come in, and everybody's young, they're like in their 20s, and everybody, honestly, everybody, nobody's talking about they want to invent the latest thing or they want to have three Michelin stars. Everybody talks about the environment. Every, all of these kids, we were blown away by, we couldn't imagine I mean, because we, 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 we didn't grow up, I mean, my mother doesn't think about this. It's a real generational shift that's happening where, where there's something that really concerns people. So for me, tomorrow's meal has to be done in a way in which the systems that we bring our food to the table from has to work in accordance to what we need to do for our world, for our planet, so that we leave things much better than what we received it, and it's not looking too well. And I never thought about these things before. I never grew up caring or or thinking it was an issue. It's a recent thing, but when you see what all these students are writing, it was mind-blowing. None of them think about three hats. I'm sorry. It's a hat. Um, (laughs) Or the number
1: one. Seriously, it was really amazing to to read. I, I think that the future, though, will be less delicious in order for it to be more sustainable. On that unsettling
0: note, (laughs) ladies, how's that for a cliffhanger? Uh,
1: That's not a downer. That's not a downer (laughs) at all.
0: Um, Ladies and gentlemen, there'll be a short recess now for you to stare inwardly and be with your thoughts and perhaps quite cry alone briefly Mm. before we come back with more uplifting speakers in about 20 minutes. But will you please join me in thanking (laughs) Renee
1: and Dave. Thank you, sir.